Alaska is comprised of 34,000 miles of coastline, which as you can imagine, can cause some challenges when it comes to travel logistics. Helicopters are one of the ideal forms of transportation because they can be utilized in both congested as well as isolated areas. Over the years, Trident has leased or owned several helicopters. Listen in to gain some insight into how these powerful machines have been such an asset for us. Chapter 15, Helicopters, Delicate Workhorses of Bristol Bay. Operating a fleet of floating processors in Bristol Bay gave Trident the advantage of mobility in the late 70s and the 80s. Nevertheless, there were significant drawbacks to being isolated at sea when an airplane landed in King Salmon or Dillingham with an important customer, a critical mechanical part, a processing technician, or a bag full of money to keep the cash-buying operation in greenbacks. Bristol Bay floaters are typically anchored in deep water at least five miles offshore. The estuaries in Bristol Bay dry up at low tide, and public moorage is extremely limited. For many years, getting to a floater meant getting into a skiff or an available gill netter for what could be a long, lumpy, and sometimes dangerous ride out to the processing ship. Life at sea is also problematic when a crewman is ill or injured and has to leave in a hurry for medical assistance. The Coast Guard is available for emergency medevacs, but the closest air station to Naknek is on Kodiak Island, 175 miles away. What's more, commercial fishing and processing operations become a 24-7 endurance test during the two-week peak of the sockeye run. Everything happens fast. Situations change quickly, equipment is pushed to the ragged edge of capacity, and things just break. Stopping production at the peak of the season can literally bankrupt an operation. While downtime drags on, the boats and the business bleed money. What was once an inexpensive hydraulic hose or bearing in the off-season suddenly becomes priceless. It might cost $60 at Napa Auto Parts in Naknek, but with no way to get it to the ship, that cheap part could cost you $3,000 per hour, and a burn rate like that justifies a helicopter. Trident has owned or leased several helicopters over the years, and the machines have earned their keep and then some in the triangle of airspace between Bristol Bay, Sandpoint, and Akatan. As recently as 1998, Trident had two helicopters at the ready in Bristol Bay. Tim Enabrad was Trident's chief helicopter pilot for 20 years. He joined the company in 1982 to fly the egg-shaped Hughes 500D turbojet that Trident had leased. Small and fast, with a relatively short rotor radius, the machine, as he referred to it, had a lot of horsepower and control in the wind, and it could land in a tight spot. It was just the sort of aircraft that fit the bill for flying whatever was needed to wherever it needed to go. Trident leased helicopters for the first few years before purchasing its own in 1988. Similar to the 500D, but with a pointed nose, Trident's 500E model had the numerical designation N5245P. Consistent with aviation and military speak, it quickly became known by its call sign 45PAPA, and Enabrad flew it for Trident 
until 2001. Like a lot of pilots in Alaska, Enabrad was a Vietnam War veteran who learned to fly on the GI Bill. I was a recon Marine back in the 60s, he said, and I got shot through the left arm in 1968. I came home, got patched up, and took flying lessons. He began flying in Alaska in 1975 for Temsco, one of Southeast Alaska's foremost helicopter flight services. Prior to entering the Salmon and Herring Air Force for Trident, much of his work involved flying geological teams to various remote sites for oil and mineral exploration. When he did a season with Trident during the fishing season, boy, you earned your money, he said. The first four or five years, I flew Chuck around quite a bit, and it's like hanging on to a whirlwind. I mean, 4.30 in the morning, and he wants to go until midnight or so. Normally, flying up north in the summer is like a paid vacation, but this was different. The fishing industry was work, Innebrand said. If you lasted one season, you were doing good. The fishing industry was tough on pilots, and it was also tough on helicopters. A helicopter is a much more delicate instrument than a fixed-wing aircraft like a Cessna 206. Trident also owned one of those, piloted for years by Clint Reese, who joined the Trident ranks when Far West Fisheries was acquired by Trident in 1992. But a fixed-wing aircraft has its limitations, and there are times when a helicopter is the only machine capable of doing the job. The advantages of a helicopter include the ability to take off vertically and hover steadily or rotate in the air, providing those inside with a 360-degree view of their surroundings, as well as the capacity to lift and deliver payloads to and from tight spaces on a tether line. Helicopters don't require runways or long straight stretches of water to take off and land, and contrary to widespread belief, Helicopters can glide without power, thanks to their ability to auto-rotate and move laterally using the pitch of the blades, but they don't glide very far. Due to the complexity of their design and the mechanical systems that allow them to do what they do so well, helicopters require a lot of moving parts, parts that can be easily damaged if they contact a branch, mast, seabird, power line, or VHF radio antenna. As Enabrad described a helicopter, it's like a beer can. It'll crunch pretty easy. Still, some helicopters are tougher than others, and in Alaska, it's best to fly a tough one. Early on, Chuck had trouble with helicopters because he had those piston poppers, Enabrad continued, referring to a class of smaller, lighter helicopters powered by conventional reciprocating piston engines. With the winds on the water, it gets pretty tricky, he continued, noting that Bristol Bay and the Aleutians are no place for underpowered machines. Speaking of the 500 turbojet, he said, it was nice to have that extra power. It was fast and real stable, and it could take a lot of pounding. Enabrad and Bundrant put the Hughes 500 to the Alaska stress test regularly. One particularly sensitive cluster of parts holding a helicopter together is the rotor strap assembly. The straps are thin, flat pieces of stainless steel that scissor across and around the hub of the rotor. They have to be extremely strong and flexible because the blades have to flex upward and twist with the changes in pitch as they're whirling around the axis. Helicopters generate tremendous centrifugal force as the blades whip around the hub 
and the blades want to fling themselves right out of the centerpiece. One answer to the engineering challenge is to make the hub extremely stout to hold the blades tightly. This, however, adds weight. To circumvent the weight problem, engineers at Hughes devised a system that utilizes the straps to connect rotor blades in such a way that they balance out the forces on either side of the hub. Collectively, the blades hold one another in place as long as the straps don't let go. Chuck and I left out a Dutch one time and it was blowing and nasty, so I went on the downwind side of the hill because I knew we had some visibility, Brad recalled. I knew we were going to get beat up by downdrafts, but I didn't know we were going to get that beat up and we got the shit beat out of us. It was right at the end of the season and we broke about eight straps on the rotor head. I think we already had a couple of broken before and if we'd broken another one, we'd have had to ground the machine. It would have been past limits. Speaking of limits, there's a limit to the amount of time one can spend anywhere in Alaska without getting fogged in or otherwise grounded by weather. The fishing business moves quickly, and it's not uncommon for the weather to be out of sync with the fishing operations. Trident's largest shore plant on Akatan Island is notorious for the weather windows that control its access by sea and air. When it's calm in Akutan Harbor, the bay is often blanketed by fog, and when the fog disappears, it's often driven out by a howling wind. If you don't like the weather, you can wait a day, but when you can't wait, you have to be creative. Akutan was either really nice or really nasty, Innerbred recalled. I'd fly in there out of the clear blue sky, and I'd know the next morning was going to be foggier than hell, and it would be, but we'd have to leave because Chuck wanted to go. When Chuck Bundren says he wants to go someplace, it's safe to assume that he doesn't want to leave sometime tomorrow. This put Enebrad in a professional bind now and then. Once in Dutch Harbor, he said, he was tempted to cave in to Bundren's wishes and take off into a thick fog without really knowing where the top of it was. He recalled he'd had a pretty good idea. The air was clear, not too far off the deck, but there was nobody in Dutch Harbor who could confirm that the fog bank had a top to it. Enebrad sat in the helicopter and wrestled with his options as he contemplated the start switch. Finally, he had to tell the boss he wasn't going to fly. Bundrant wasn't happy, and he left the airport to find some local business to attend to rather than peering into the fog with Enebrad. Reflecting on the situation, Enebrad admitted he really wanted to take off, but there were other pilots and aircraft personnel at the airport, and the peer pressure stopped him from hitting the go switch. I just didn't want to look stupid starting it up, he said. When a similar situation presented itself in Akatan one summer, Enebrad came up with a novel solution, one that satisfied his professionalism and got him and the boss on their way. Directly behind the plant in Akatan is a mountain that rises 1,600 feet out of Akatan Harbor. Steep for the first 400 feet, the slope moderates as it climbs to a ridge at 800 feet and then gives way to a gentle grassy slope running up the base to the final rocky crest. It's a stout hike, but like most challenges, it can be overcome with the right motivation. Bundrant was ready to leave Akatan, and Enebred wasn't ready to say no again. So the pilots set out to find a path out of there on foot. I climbed up the side of the hill, got up through the fog and saw a corridor, Enebred said. The corridor was only about 100 feet between the fog layers, 
but I could see straight across the pass to the other side. Enabrad scrambled down the hill and fired up the machine. Bundren hopped aboard, and the helicopter lifted off like an elevator, taking them straight up to the break between the layers of fog. From there, it was a clear flight to Dutch Harbor. We got used to landing in funny places, Enabrad recalled. When I'd go to land on a floater like the Sea Alaska, I'd have to land up on the bow. I'd call ahead and ask if they could check the deck for plastic and other stuff that could get in the way. Of course, everybody on the boat is tired, and sometimes they did a better job than other times. Sometimes plastic would fly around, and sometimes it wouldn't. We never had a real problem with it, but I got into a piece of plastic on the Neptune once when we went in there to land, and it got up in the rotor blade. It started swishing around, and it scared the hell out of us, but we got down okay. Making it down okay is a reasonable goal, but sometimes it took as much ingenuity to land the helicopter as it did to take off. That was the situation aboard the Trident Processor Tempest one summer when the company was flying two helicopters in Bristol Bay. The secondary helicopter wasn't a turbojet. It was a piston-powered Robinson R-22. The pilot landed on the Tempest and the wind caught the blades when it shut down and it chopped the tail rotor, Enabrad recalled. So I fly over and I'm looking at the Tempest because I've got to land there and the other machine is already sitting there because he's broken down. So I call the skipper and ask what that thing weighs when it's empty, when it's all stripped. The guy says, about 900 pounds. So they pull everything out of it and get a line on it. And now I'm coming in to hook it, lift it off the deck, and put it back down midship. I say, are you sure it only weighs 900? Because I don't want to go into the drink. He says, yep, about 900. So they strip it down. The winds were blowing pretty good, but I came around, we hooked it, and I dropped it amidships, and I looked like I'd done it all my life. Then I could land. Sometimes delivering the right person via helicopter can be just as valuable as any critical part or piece of machinery. Chuck Bundrant recalled the importance of flying a particular sockeye buyer to the Tempest during the summer of 1981, when the ship was anchored up at the Y. The Bristol Bay Y is a common estuary shared by the Naknek and Quijack rivers. Close to both productive rivers, it's a popular anchorage for floating processors and fish tenders. Rather than waiting for high water in order to access shore base facilities, Gillnetters fishing either river can offload their catch to a floater and immediately get back to fishing. The season was winding down, and the Tempest had a full load of frozen sockeye ready for a buyer. Bundrant's style was to avoid making preseason commitments to customers on the price or the volume to be delivered. He was also careful to avoid taking loans or seed money from buyers prior to the season. He didn't want to be locked into a deal he couldn't escape because Bristol Bay is always a gamble. It's by far the largest volume producer of sockeye in the world, and what happens in the bay drives the sockeye market throughout Alaska. If the bay run comes in stronger than expected, everyone has fish to sell, and holding a customer to an unreasonably high preseason commitment is tough to do when salmon are everywhere. Customers remember getting burned. On the other hand, if the run comes up short, the sockeye price goes up, fishermen expect more money for their deliveries, and processors can expect more on the wholesale side of the operation. 
but only if they haven't locked themselves into a preseason contract at a lower price. If they have, their costs still go up for each fish they buy, but they have fewer fish to sell, and they miss the ride up as the wholesale prices increase postseason. It's not only frustrating, it can put you out of business. Bundrant's inclination to hold this fish paid off in 1981. It was early in the game for Trident, but the floating operation had proved its worth that season. Fishermen on shore were once again on strike, and shore-based processors were behind in production, even though there were plenty of sockeye swimming into Bristol Bay. Trident's fleet of independent fishermen and floating processors were earning a reputation for being hostile and mobile. When hundreds of shore-based boats stayed tied to the dock on strike, the Trident fleet took advantage of the uncluttered fishing grounds and filled their nets. Joe Uitake was a fish trader from Japan. His customers needed sockeye, and he was willing to pay more for them, but only if the quality met his specifications. He wanted to see what he was buying, and he preferred to do his buying on land, driving along the waterfront in Naknek or Dillingham. On the road, it was easy for a buyer to shop around and visit a number of processors in a single afternoon. Traveling from ship to ship, on the other hand, can be a dicey operation. Not only is the boat ride a risk, but climbing from a bouncing skiff to the deck of a floating processor can be terrifying. It looks easy for a seasoned deckhand who's used to slippery fish decks and precarious railings, but stepping on a wet rubber bumper or buoy ball as it's being squeezed and rolled between the skip and the ship is not for the faint of heart. A running tide of silty cold water can swallow up a careless visitor in the blink of an eye. Sometimes, floating processors are quite large and visitors have to climb a rope ladder 20 or 30 feet to the railing above. Once again, the ascent looks easy for a nimble deckhand, but for those less fit who forget to wear sensible shoes, it's a climb that generates nightmares for years to come, especially so if halfway up the rope ladder, you begin to wonder which one of those kids on deck tied the knots holding the rope to the rail. Joe Uitake wanted to buy my fish, Bunnett recalled. I didn't know him from Adam at the time, but I said, I'll get the skiff and run you out to take a look. He said, oh no, I'm not going out there in a skiff. We'll get killed. So I asked Louis Kemp if I could borrow his helicopter and he said, sure. Helicopters offer their own brand of thrill, especially if there's no appropriate place to put one down on the floater. Once the value of helicopters became clear to offshore operators in Bristol Bay, and once they could afford them, boat owners began to modify their superstructures and install makeshift helicopter pads high up on the aft part of the house. Kemp Seafoods was operating the 356-foot bearing trader in Bristol Bay at the time, and it was a ship large enough to accommodate a full-size landing pad. The Tempest was 210 feet, but it had a platform aft that held a Connex housing unit. Essentially, the housing unit was a modified shipping container, and while its boxy shape didn't match the lines of the vessel, it did provide accommodations for eight additional crewmen. It had a flat roof, and the only major obstruction to landing a helicopter there, besides the stacks, the mast, and the antennas forward, was the mast holding the light at the stern. I ran out in the skiff, grabbed a torch, and cut the running light off the back of the ship myself, Bunner recalled. Then I ran the skiff back to Naknek to catch the helicopter with my customer. 
We landed the helicopter on the connex. We shinnied down the side and took a look at the product. We were doing round fish at the time, and he wanted the fish. He offered me a dollar more than anyone else was getting. That taught me a lesson I'll never forget, Bundren added. You can develop a good relationship with your customers, but don't make deals in advance and don't take money from them ahead of time. If you do, you can lock yourself in and they can bring you to your knees. I've seen it happen more than once. All Alaskan got shorted a dollar a pound one year because they'd locked into a preseason commitment, Bundren recalled. They couldn't pay their fishermen as much as other processors did, and they lost their whole fleet. We hope that you enjoyed Chapter 15, Helicopters. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review so you can be the first to know when our next episode, First Response, Urgent Care in the Air, is released on Wednesday, May 20th. We appreciate you joining us, and we hope that this adventure inspires you to catch your own deck load of dreams.